Peter has said to us before we come on that he has never supported or justified paedophilia and condemned and does condemn and oppose child abuse unreservedly and always will. And he has campaigned on behalf of child sex abuse or should I say against child sex abuse and supported the victims. And he also claims as well that his Guardian letter was actually edited by the Guardian newspaper. And we'll get around to talking about that later on. But good evening, Peter. How are you? Good evening. Lovely to join you. You too. Now, Peter, let's learn a little bit about you first. Before we get to that other stuff, and the other stuff obviously we need to talk about, and this is why you're on the air tonight, but I just want to know a bit about you. And a lot of people, you know, they know the name Peter Tatchell now because you kind of trended on Twitter all week in Ireland. Were you surprised by that, by the way, the fact that you trended on Twitter? I was rather, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, how did you hear about it? Did somebody say, Peter, you better get on Twitter quick. People are talking about you. That's right. Okay, well, look, you, you go back a good while. You're a little bit older than me. In 1952, you were born. You were born in Australia. But you moved from Australia because you didn't want to be in the Australian Army and you moved to the UK. Uh, uh, I just correct you there. Okay. It wasn't because I didn't want to be in the Australian Army. It's because I disagreed with Australian and American troops being sent to Vietnam to kill innocent people. Okay, so you didn't want I to be conscripted. Moral, yeah. I had a moral objection to that war. Okay. You know, if, if, if Britain or Ireland was under attack, I would defend their, those countries. But I wasn't prepared to go to Vietnam to kill innocent civilians. And I can completely understand why you wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to either. I certainly wouldn't want to be involved in war. I understand wars are what they are and what they were. Thankfully, wars are different nowadays, I suppose. But maybe that's not a good thing either. But I suppose moving to Britain and you moved to London in 1971, uh, at what point did you get involved in LGBT campaigning? I mean, first of all, when did you realise you were gay yourself? At what point or what age were you when you realised you were gay yourself? Well, I didn't realise I was gay until I was 17. Um, and despite my very devout religious upbringing, um, when I fell in love with a man, um, love overrode all those religious objections. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, um, you know, Christian values are all about love and compassion. If you love and care for another person, it shouldn't matter whether that person is male or female. And were your parents um, were your parents religious? Oh, they were very, very religious, yes. So how did they feel when, I suppose, you said to them, listen, I'm gay, and of course the Bible doesn't agree with it, as you well know. So how did they feel? I mean, were they, were they surprised? Were they, did they support you through it? No, they, they were extremely distressed and... Um, I initially didn't tell them for a while because I fear they might turn me into the police because back in those days, when I was growing up in Melbourne, Australia, um, homosexuality was a serious crime. You could be jailed for several years in prison mm-hmm. and you could also be, in certain circumstances, be forced to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment to cure your sexuality. Because at that time, of course, so, it was treated as an illness. That's right. Yeah. I mean, um, and, and let's let's move to London. So in London, uh, with others, you helped to organise the Britain's first gay pride march in 1972. How did you get involved actively, I suppose, in campaigning? Because as a gay, the average gay man obviously is gay, but I mean, they don't get actively involved in campaigning. So what led you into that? Well, even before I knew I was gay and began gay rights campaigning, I was concerned about social justice issues. My family was very, very, very poor poor working class. My mother suffered from life-threatening chronic asthma. Uh, She nearly died eight times during my childhood. All our family bills went on doctors and medical expenses because in those days in Australia, there was nothing like the National Health Service. You had to pay, pay, pay for everything. Mm -hmm. So we were incredibly poor. 
And I just thought it was so wrong that just because our mother was so sick that we had to suffer. I mean, I can remember coming home from school after playing sport and being really hungry and there being no food in the house. Um, so I had a very strong social conscience from an early age. Um, I'd also been very much inspired by the black civil rights movement in America. Um, you know, I heard and read about Martin Luther King and the Freedom Riders in the Deep South. That was a big, big influence on me. Um, and that, of course, made me question Australia's treatment of the indigenous black Australians, the Aboriginal mm -hmm. people. And you know, we, we, we've never taught anything at school, but I did my own research and found that when the first white people, the first English people, arrived in Australia in 1788 to set up the new colony, there were probably somewhere between half a million and three quarters of a million black Australians. And gradually, they were dispossessed from their land, um, gradually through European-introduced diseases, and indeed, by actual organized killing sprees, the indigenous population went way, way down. So that by the 1920s, um, there were you know, mm -hmm. less than a quarter of the original number left. And usually most populations grow over time, but the Aboriginal population decreased. What, so what is, by the way, what is the Aboriginal about, population now? I'm, I'm just curious now. Well, what is the population of Aboriginals in Australia? Um, honest, I don't know. Percentage-wise, it's, probably, it's a really it, small it percentage. Has it has grown now, but it's, it's not... No, I don't, I don't know at the moment. I know. It's only, it's only in more recent years, I suppose, they have um, sought more rights and they've been treated with the respect that they deserve. I mean, I know they, they operate tax-free and all that kind of stuff and they've been given grants by the state as well. But, I mean, for many, many years, they were treated like dirt, essentially. Uh, considering That's right. Yeah. The other big influence, of course, was the Vietnam War, where Australia was fighting alongside the Americans. And initially, like most people, I thought it was a just war. But then I began to read books and read newspaper articles and so on and realized and discovered that the Australians and the Americans were indiscriminately bombing civilian areas, bombing villages, massacring villages. Now, some of that was deliberate. Some of that was by rogue soldiers. But these terrible things were happening. And we were supporting a regime in South Vietnam um, against the North Vietnamese. But the South Vietnamese regime was at least as brutal as the North, um, you know, you know, Buddhist monks who were protesting for peace were being beaten, killed, and jailed. Um, so I became a, a fierce opponent of the war. In well, then it strikes me that and the draft. Okay, but it strikes me that by the time you had even got to London, you were very angry. I, I think of what was going on, not just in Australia but around the world, and to minorities in general, and not just gay people. So you, you were. I, I'm assuming you were quite. Were you an angry person? I wouldn't say angry. I, I was motivated by a love of other people, mm -hmm. love of freedom, equality, and justice. I don't like to see other people suffering. I wouldn't like to suffer. And if I was suffering, I'd want someone to help me. So my conscience says when I see others suffering, I should try and do my bit to help stop that suffering. And that has motivated all my human rights work over the last 53 years. Okay, and in relation to the Gay Pride Parade in 1972, the first Gay Pride Parade in Britain, there must have been, I imagine, at the time, because of the way society was and the way the society viewed homosexuality and lesbianism and gay people in general at that time, were there objections to it? I mean, were there objections loud? Well, we came up with the idea of gay pride to counter the prevailing view was that to be gay was shameful. So we said, no, we're not ashamed. We're proud of who we are. We believe we have dignity, rights. We deserve respect. 
that's what, how the idea of gay pride came. And you're right, there was incredible hostility. And indeed, on that first march, there were only about a thousand people. That's and quite a lot, by all, the way, when you consider it was 1972, and many gay people would have been afraid to be uh, outed, I suppose, essentially, or treated differently in society. Well, that is true. That is true. Most gay people back then were in the closet. They were afraid to show their face because they feared rejection by their family or friends. Or their employers. They feared, they, yeah, they feared being sacked from their jobs, which some were. Um, they feared being evicted by homophobic landlords. So, yeah, only a thousand people turned out. Now, the responses of the public, the passers-by, the people on the pavements, was very mixed. Uh, probably about a third were quite hostile. You know, some even threw coins and bottles and spat at us. Uh, and by the way, the police never intervened to arrest those people. Um, about a third were sort of just bewildered and astonished that gay people would dare show their faces. Uh, and about another third were actually supportive. They cheered, gave us a thumbs up. So it was a very mixed response. The policing was pretty tough. I mean, the police hemmed us in. Some officers pushed and shoved us. A few of them abused us openly as using you know, homophobic insults. And with a, with a parade, uh, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to visualize that parade, Peter. Would it be as flamboyant as some of the gay pride parades would be now? Or would they have been afraid to have been flamboyant? Well, it was a carnival parade. So people had beautiful costumes and, mm-hmm. you know, but it was also very political. It was about trying to end discrimination and against LGBTQ yes. plus people. Yeah. So we were very much celebrating our, our community, but also making the case for our human rights. And I suppose to jump forward, I suppose you've always been involved then from that point in, you know, campaigning for LGBT rights, as many people in this country have, including David Norris over here, who's been very famous for that. And of course, uh, the end result was, of course, in 19, uh, the early 1990s, of course, uh, that homosexuality was not illegal anymore in this country. But in the 1990s, you campaigned not just in relation to, say, the way people were treated, but also in relation to the music and the lyrics of songs inciting violence against LGBT people. Um, and for that reason, you got involved in that campaign, which was called Stop Murder Music. Um, and was was that quite prevalent? Because I, I I don't know if I remember music that I, I suppose um, I would have essentially been you know taking the piss out of gay people. I I don't think I remember. I mean, Lola was probably one song by the Kinks, but then again, I I would imagine gay people probably liked that song. Um, but I mean, was there much music at the time that was doing that? Well, there was some homophobic music, like um, some of Eminem's tracks and some of Guns N' Roses tracks. Mm-hmm. But there were also um, some tracks by Jamaican dance hall and reggae singers, which openly advocated the murder of LGBT okay. plus okay, people. Their lyrics said things like gay people should be shot, hanged, burned and drowned. And this was a criminal offence. You know, incitement to murder is a criminal offence. Absolutely. But nobody was prosecuting these singers. And in fact, even the BBC was playing their song. It is astonishing, actually, as a radio station, even sometimes we play songs in innocence, you know, and some of them would be old. We were classic hits radio stations, so we play a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s. And I'd often listen to some of the lyrics and I go, do they really say that in the lyrics? Because I think we just we hear these words unconsciously and we don't actually understand what they're actually the meaning of the songs. A lot of the time we sing along to them sometimes and we don't understand the meaning of the song because they're just words to us and just a melody, I suppose. Well, the BBC were very quickly informed about what those lyrics said, and we had to fight for months and months to get them to stop playing those songs. They said it was free speech. We said incitement to murder is a criminal offence. I mean, it, it was astonishing. We had to fight the BBC tooth and nail for months 
to get them to stop playing songs that they knew were inciting the murder of LGBT plus people. And it's astonishing when we look back at 2020 with 2020 eyes and 2020 vision and 2020 morals and we look back at what people did, I suppose, in the 60s, 70s, 80s and possibly right up to the early 90s as well. Um, it's very difficult to apply today's morals to the way society, I suppose, viewed the world then. I suppose, like, I, and we, we see this today with, you know, the removal of statues and all this kind of other stuff. And I always argue that it's, these are part of history. And yes, they were wrong. Yes, these people were wrong that were involved in slavery and all sorts of things three or four hundred years ago. But it's even to, when we talk about the stuff that you're campaigning against now, it's hard for people to even understand that that was a thing only 30 years ago. And we look yeah, at it. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Can you, can you imagine that in London, until 1991, police were arresting same-sex couples in London for merely kissing and cuddling in public? They said that was a public order offence. They said it was outraging public decency. And people were dragged to court and fined and got criminal convictions for giving their partner a goodnight kiss at a bus stop or a railway station. I mean, yeah, well, we, but, well, I know, but, yeah. I know people find that hard to understand now because, of course, Ireland, of course, as you know, has kind of been trailblazing and leading the way uh, in progression. I mean, of course, Ireland was the first country to have, by constitutional right, allow gay people to get married in the world. Ireland was the first country to allow transgender people to self-identify um, without having to go and see psychiatrists and psychologists and all sorts. So, I mean, we have kind of trailblazed and led the way. And I I'd imagine you would you would like to see every other country follow suit. But, I mean, in 1996, Peter, you uh, led what they call an outrage campaign to reduce the age of consent in the UK to 14 years because it's, you said it had to be adjusted for studies that showed that nearly half of young people had their first sexual experience prior to the age of 16 years of age. And here in Ireland, by the way, the age of having a first sexual experience has reduced in the last 20 years from 17 to 16 years. But does that still mean, when we talk about the age of consent, it is a guideline uh, it's a guideline for young people because we believe they're mature over the age of 16 and over the age of 17 and over the age of 18. Um, and in this country, the age of consent is 17. It's the same for gay people and the same for straight people. At one stage, it was different. But to reduce it to 14, why did you think 14 was an appropriate age to reduce the age of consent? Well, first of all, that was in response to requests that we had heard from young people, both gay and straight. They said... Why should we be treated as criminals if we have a sexual relationship? And our response was that young people should wait. It's best if young people don't have sex at an early age. They should wait. But if they don't, we agree they should not be treated as criminals, providing there's no more than, say, two or three years difference in their ages. We were not in any way seeking to endorse adults having sex with children. And indeed, this differential policy of of allowing sex below the age of 16 providing there's no more than two or three years difference in the ages it exists in germany um, portugal italy israel switzerland and a number of other countries i i i know this the, the age of consent varies about. around the world and i don't know from mexico is actually really quite low to be honest with you but so there's many countries which have a much lower age of consent and I suppose you could argue they're countries with different morals, uh, with different views and societal views on life. But because, I suppose, in the UK and, and Ireland, I can speak for Ireland as well, because we're very similar, similar culturally, I suppose, we had set the age at 17 or 18 in some cases, it depended on what year you happen to be talking about. We view that as the age where people 
could, I suppose, consciously give consent and be mature enough to give consent. For example, we're mature enough at 18 years of age to have a drink. According to the law, we're not mature enough at 17 years and 364 days to have a drink. But people do, and I understand that, and nobody should really be arrested and dragged before the courts for having a drink under the age of 18. But when we decide uh, on sex and when we think something that's life-changing for somebody, particularly a woman if she gets pregnant or if somebody gets raped and it's not for and it's not consensual. I mean, we, we do that for a reason that we don't believe that children at the age of 14 and the valuable word here is children at the age of 14 could ever consent. Yeah, well, well, the point to make is that we only said there should be a review of the age of consent providing it goes hand-in-hand with better, earlier, high-quality sex and relationship education to encourage young people to make wise, responsible choices and also to give them the skills and confidence to say no to sex they don't want and to report abusers. But 14, Peter, but do you think... Okay, let, let me ask you a question. And you rightly pointed out that in many countries around the world the age of consent is a lot lower than it is in the UK and Ireland. But do you think a 14-year-old should have the right to consent to having sex? Well, first of all, as I said, I think it's better if young people don't have sex at an early no, age. No, that's not the question I asked. I think it's better, they, better, better if they delay. But if they do... That's not the question I'm asking you, Peter. Treat, they shouldn't be treated as criminals. They shouldn't be treated so you were as criminals. Saying, okay, what, so what so well, then, well, then you were saying the age of consent should be reduced to 14 if it's not going to be criminalised over the age of 14. Well, hang on the position we eventually adopted was the age of consent should remain at 16, but sex involving young people below the age of 16 should not be prosecuted, providing both partners consent, do not complain, have not been harmed, and providing there's no more than, say, two or three years difference in their age. Okay, well, they do something similar here, whereby there was a case going back about three or four years ago where two 15-year-olds had sex. It was brought to court, and the argument is it should be left to the discretion of a judge to decide on those things. Would you agree with that, that it should be under the age, in the UK at 16, obviously in Ireland at 17, do you believe under that age it should be left to the discretion of a judge to decide whether the person is capable of consent? whether the person is capable of consent and and all the full circumstances of the particular case should be uh, addressed and looked at. Now, I'll give you an example. At the time when Outrage began that campaign, we'd been approached by a mother whose daughter had been arrested by the police for having consenting sex with her childhood sweetheart, also aged 14, both were aged 14. Um, she was so distressed um, and we gave her the advice that they should try and speak to the police and explain the context. This was not some random stranger. These two young people had been childhood sweethearts since the age of 10 and they hadn't really intended to have sex, but they did at the age of 14 and somehow or other the, the boy's mother found out about this. I don't know how that happened and reported the girl to the police. And then, the next thing you know, the police come, and they're going to be charged with um, unlawful... And and I I understand understand where you're going with that, Peter, and I completely appreciate the point that you're trying to make. But the problem is, when you put that into law, and you change the age of consent, let's say, in the UK from 16 to 14, right? Let's say you did that. 
Well, then you leave the door wide open for older people to come along, have sex with 14-year-olds and say, well, they consented. They were over the age of 14. But that's why we've said there should be no more than two or three years difference in the ages. So, you know, a 16 and a 14-year-old could have sex and providing it was with consent and there's no evidence of coercion or manipulation, they wouldn't be prosecuted. But if a 40-year-old tried to have sex or did have sex with a 14-year-old, then of course they should okay, be prosecuted. Okay, well then, but, but the problem is you can go down a rabbit hole. Can the 14-year-old have sex with a 12-year-old? Well, I, I know this is why you, why you are correct in saying the matter should be brought before a judge and the judge should assess whether that sex was exploitative or abusive or harmful. But would you, would you think that would be a criminal offence because the 14-year-old is over the age of consent and maybe the boy is 12 years of age? Do, do you believe that would be acceptable? Well, I'd have to look at each individual situation. It's not for me to decide. It would be for a judge. Okay. And okay. of course, I, I would not, I would oppose anybody having sex at that age. I don't think young people should have sex at that age. Well, we, 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 we know they shouldn't because they're not mature enough to make that decision. We don't believe yeah. they're mature enough to understand yeah. even what they're doing at that age, particularly 12 years of age. Okay, but, okay, but moving on, just, and I'll come back to that in a second because I do want to come back, obviously, yeah. to the letter in a second. I know we'll, we'll get back into that conversation anyway. Yeah. Um, you joined the Green Party in England and in Wales in 2007. I mean, what made you move into politics? Was that so you could, I suppose, get a better ear on what was going on and maybe have a little bit more leverage when it came to your own campaign? Well, no, I, I'd been a member of the Labour Party since the 1970s, and I stood as a Labour parliamentary candidate in the 1983 Bermondsey by-election. Mm-hmm. So I'd been involved in parliamentary politics and you know, political campaigning um, through the Labour Party and then later the Green Party for many, many years. OK, but you decided to stand down in 2009 and focus on your own foundation. And what is it exactly, by the way, for people who don't know uh, the Peter Thatcher Foundation, what is it you kind of mainly do? Well, the Peter Thatcher Foundation is a London-based human rights organisation which campaigns for human rights in the UK and around the world. Um, About half our work is for LGBT plus rights, but about the other half our work is for other human rights. So, for example, we defend the rights of persecuted Christians in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. Uh, We support persecuted ethnic minorities in different countries around the world where, like, for example, the Arabs in Iran, who are severely persecuted by the Tehran regime. So we do a range of different things. So I'm assuming you work hand in hand with Amnesty International then in relation to many of those issues. Yes, and Human Rights Watch and and many others, yeah. Okay. All right, Peter, if you don't mind, let's get to the questions that have been kind of posed on Twitter over the last week or so and where this, I suppose, this all started and why suddenly you're being interviewed on Irish radio. And, and if you don't mind, of course, I mean, I'm sure you don't mind going there because obviously you want to bring clarity to it yourself. Another questions that have been raised uh, during this campaign on Twitter and this trending campaign on Twitter. And some of the stuff that has been said about you, I would like you to clarify for me. Um, you have said in the past that you would like to see a world that is bisexual. Is, do you believe that? Is, that? is that something that you believe? Well, I'd like to see a world where People are free to be who they are. I don't want to see people who are you know, forced to be boxed into gay or straight or trans or cisgender. I, I want to see everybody to be able to be who they are, providing, of course, they don't harm other people. And you know, I think a lot of the way in which society has operated in the past has been to say, this is the way you must behave. So that's why for centuries, LGBT plus people were persecuted. For centuries, women were denied equal status. 
Do you, do you believe more people are bisexual than we actually think, for example? Do you think there are many people who are bisexual who are afraid to express maybe, you know, men, for example, who are married, who might be afraid to express uh, their sexual attraction to men because they're not supposed to do that because they're macho and they're cool and they're men? Well, the research shows that a lot of people do have the potential capacity to love a person of either sex, male or female, um, but many feel inhibited because of family pressure, religious pressure, community pressure, or just the peer pressure of expectations to behave in a certain way. So that's very damaging to people. Um, and it's not about saying people should be this or should be that. It's about saying people should be free to be who they well, are. Well, I wouldn't, disagree I, with think- you. I wouldn't disagree with you on that, as long as I suppose we're not actively campaigning for people to be one way or the other. I think people should be allowed to just be what they want to be without being encouraged to be what they want to be, if you understand the yeah. point. Yeah, make- live and let live, love and let love. I'll come back to that love and let love in a second. But the new sex education bill, by the way, is due out in Ireland, similar to the one that was brought out to much controversy in the UK over the last year and a half or so. And most likely, by the way, that will be objected. It's probably going to be here with us uh, in the next year or so. But it will be objected to by some parents as they believe that it normalises LGBT and they feel they want to opt their children out of those sex ed classes. Now, they might do that, say, for religious reasons or for maybe just their moral views in society and everybody's entitled to their own views and their own opinions as long as they don't hurt somebody else or offend somebody else. Now, I just want to play a little bit of audio of what you said in relation to that, if you don't mind me, Peter, and I'll just play a little bit here. It's a really short piece. Famous filmmaker Derek Jarman, who sadly has, has died, um, he told me when he was about 50... Actually, that's the wrong piece there. Sorry, I do apologise. I'll come back to that in a second. Well, my question is, we don't allow parents to take their kids out of science or mathematics or geography or um, physics or biology. Why should they be able to take their kids out of sex and relationship education? It's part of the education curriculum. Um, So I've come up with a slightly modified version of the parental opt-out because I know that politicians are too cowardly to insist that parents should not have the right to take the kids out of classes. So what I'm suggesting is the policy ought to be modified to allow parents to take their kids out of those classes, but require them to come physically to the school each lesson to physically take their child out of that class. Okay, that makes it very awkward for a parent who wants their child to opt out, because essentially what you're doing, or what you'd like to do, I suppose, Peter, is shame or publicly humiliate that parent for the decisions that they want to make. But do you believe the parents have the right to make that decision or does the state have the right to make that decision when it comes to, say, a 12-year-old, 11-year-old or a 12-year-old? Whose, whose decision is it as to how they're educated uh, when it comes to sex education? Well, first of all, the intention is not to shame or humiliate the parent. The intention is to sh- ensure that young people have the information they need to protect themselves to lead happy, fulfilled lives. And we want to reduce the level of teenage pregnancies and abortions. We want to reduce the rate of sexual infections, particularly HIV. And the way we do that is by early good quality relationship and sex Absolutely. education. Absolutely, which is age appropriate, of course, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and we know that in countries where this is trialed, the rates of teenage pregnancies and abortions go way, way down. Absolutely. Peter, I couldn't agree with you more. When it comes to sex education, 
Well, I mean, at the moment, when my children, when they were younger, and the, you know, the sex education or RSE as they call it, um, it comes along, we get a form home as parents to sign that we give permission for a child to, to be given sex education, right? Uh, if we have a problem with that, we can approach the school and talk to the school about it, okay? But sex education has changed. Uh, they're now updating sex education to include LGBT and to denormalise what it is to be straight. In other words, that everybody, including gay people, tra- transgender or different genders, um, is all part of normal life. There are many parents, <coughs> pardon me, there are many parents who don't agree with that. Now, I wouldn't have an issue with it, wouldn't bother me in the slightest. But there are parents out there, for whatever religious reason, I have to represent them as well, and they're listening because it is a Catholic country, of course, as you know, Peter, who don't believe that, who don't agree with, with you and your relationship as a gay man, who don't agree with transgenderism and believe there's only two genders, male and female, and that's the end of it, who don't agree that that should be normalised in any way, shape or form. And they don't want their children to learn that. Do they have a right to say no? Well, they are entitled to their views. And as much as I disagree with them, I will defend their right to hold that view. Okay. But I don't think they have a right to deny their children the education those children children. children. need to protect themselves. But it's their children. They're not your children. They're theirs. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Children are not the property of parents. Well, parents have a right as guardians to raise those children as best as they see best. And if they think that is the best way to raise their child, who are we to argue? Well, you're absolutely right. Parents do have a right to raise their children as they see fit. But also, society has a responsibility to make sure that children are not harmed by not knowing how to protect themselves against unwanted pregnancies, by not knowing how to protect themselves against unwanted sexual infections. And I think, and I, I think parents, every parent is all for that part of sex education, but the updated sex education uh, over the last four or five years, and particularly in the next year in this country, is going to include a lot of stuff that many parents object to. Yeah, but if, teaching about the fact of life that LGBT plus people exist is not promoting it or endorsing it. It's just teaching the facts, and it's designed to teach the facts to stop the bullying of LGBT plus kids in schools, which goes on. And I'm sure no parent, and particularly no Christian parent, would ever approve of the bullying of another child. We'll only stop that bullying if there is a discussion about LGBT plus people and a recognition that LGBT plus people exist. They exist in the school, among pupils, among staff. They exist in the wider society. That is a fact of life. It's not about promoting it. Okay, well, we'll agree to disagree, but I do believe those parents have a right. They do not want their child to be exposed to that kind of education. I believe they have a right, as they are the primary guardians of their children. Um, And unfortunately, you are right in the sense that maybe those children will grow up, um, you know, having some sort of prejudices. I would like to think that they wouldn't, and they would also be thought by their parents not to have prejudice towards people, but that sometimes people are different to yourself. And I I agree with that. Uh, Okay, but can I just say that, can I just add that, I don't know about Ireland, but in Britain, the surveys have shown that the vast majority of parents support this education. They may not necessarily even approve of LGBT people, but they support the education. And they themselves say, we don't feel competent and capable of delivering this education. And that's fine. So we're pleased at the school. Yeah, but Peter, that's fine. If those parents agree with it, and if 95% of parents agree with it, that's fine. And their children are quite welcome to learn all about it and as much as they want them to learn about it, as long as the parents are well understanding of what's actually in it. 
But if there is 5% or 10% of parents out there for religious reasons or for whatever reasons uh, don't want their children exposed to that, I also believe they have the same right. Does that apply to parents who are racist? They should, no, there's, they, a, they there's should a huge oppose. difference in racism. I, I mean, you're not going to no, teach a child racism. No, 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 sorry. Racism exists in our society just like homophobia. And it's right that schools but, challenge racism. But, but there's, a difference in, there's a difference in homophobia. Nobody, nobody would object to a teacher or anybody teaching a child that we should accept everybody for who they are. Well, when you talk about yes, sex, ed- we, we, but when you talk about sex education, you're going into things in further detail uh, for young children, and some parents might object to that. That's all I'm saying. But, okay. but there are some parents, sadly, who are racist, who don't believe that black and other Asian and other people are, are, are equal and deserve respect and rights. Okay, well, let's. I don't think I don't. We, no one would say they have a right to. Okay, well, I, I disagree with you inherently, Peter, because I, I, as much as I agree with you in a sense that I believe that children should be thought about those things, there are many parents listening tonight who completely disagree with you, and I believe those parents equally have a right in society to make a decision on their children. And I always believed that a parent is the primary guardian of a child, and obviously there is some parents out there who are completely inadequate. I'm well aware of that, but most parents do the best they can for their children, and it has served them well up to now. Uh, but in saying that, you are right in the sense that, you know, many parents out there do want this type of education and well done to them too. And But I do believe that parents should have the final say. And I think your suggestion that they should come and collect them from the school themselves to opt out, I think that's kind of a form of trying to humiliate the parent into them wanting to do it. In other words, it's forcing them to do the education. But, all right, but look, we move on. Um, many people online have commented on the beautifully written, by the way, obituary that you did for a fellow campaigner, Ian Dunn. Do you regret that obituary to Ian Dunn? Yes, I do, because I didn't know at the time that he had any association with paedophilia. None of my friends knew that. I'm in London. He's in Scotland. I didn't really know him hardly at all. I only met him a few times. But he was a very important campaigner for LGBT plus rights in Scotland, which is why I wrote the obituary. I wouldn't have written the obituary if I'd known that he was involved with or connected to the paedophile information exchange. I only found out that information many, many years later. And what would you say now if you, if you were to write something about him now? Because, of course, he was the co-founder of the paedophile information exchange. And not only that, it was widely reported at the time as well that he was using his own apartment uh, to allow adults to have sex with children. He denied that, but he never sued anybody for publishing that, which leads us to believe that maybe um, the very fact that he didn't do that, um, he may have been guilty of that crime as well. But what would you say now in an obituary if you were writing an obituary about him? Well, of course, I would condemn his support for the paedophile information exchange. And I would have thought that he should have been prosecuted if he was involved in criminal acts. Of course, I totally abhor what the paedophile information exchange stands for. I have never, never, ever supported them. I never will. Well, they're gone now anyway, aren't they? They went, they were, they were, they've been abolished now or de- defunded or whatever they were, they were supposed to be doing at the time. I don't know what they were doing. I mean, clearly they wouldn't get away with what they were doing at the time now. Getting to the letter, and this is, of course, uh, Peter, why I suppose we really want to talk to you tonight, because, of course, this is why you've trended on Twitter all week, is in relation to this letter. And I just want to read the last paragraph of the letter. And just to put it into perspective, you originally wrote this letter in relation to, you were initially speaking about boys in Papua New Guinea and tribes who had sex with older warriors. But you also said in Western culture, several of my friends, meaning your own friends, gay and straight, male and female, had sex with adults from the ages of 9 to 13 
Um, none feel they were abused. All say it was their conscious choice and gave them and it gave them great joy. Uh, where it may be impossible to condone paedophilia, it is uh, time society acknowledged the truth that not all sex involving children is unwanted, abusive and harmful. Now, you say that letter was edited. Now, we got onto the Guardian newspaper today and in their terms and conditions, they do have the right to edit letters. Um, it does say they may edit letters for size, obviously, because they can obviously fit a certain amount of letters into their newspaper, so they may shorten them. Um, but obviously, they've taken you completely out of context. So what is the context that that would make any sense whatsoever? Well, that letter was a response to calls by some people that the book dares to speak should be censored, banned, or there should be no discussion about the issues it raised. And on free speech grounds, I said, even if you disagree with the book, the authors have a right to make their point of view. And the authors were, in many cases, distinguished academics, psychologists, anthropologists, sociologists. I think of a Dutch senator, a former editor or a board member of a Christian newspaper. So on those grounds, I said, you know, let's look at this. Let's look at this. But in the end, I, I went through the various bits in the book and then concluded it is impossible to condone paedophilia. So I made it quite clear. But, but now, OK, but you did say, and I want to read that part again, several of my gay friends, or gay, sorry, friends, gay and straight and male and female had sex with adults from the ages of 9 to 13. None feel they were abused and all say it was their conscious choice and it gave them great joy. Now... In relation to those individuals that you spoke to or those people that you refer to as your friends, did you actually write that piece? Was that piece, just that paragraph I read, was that edited? No, that bit wasn't. Okay, so so then then give me the context. Well, give me the context where the friends told you this. And and I don't want to know their names, obviously. That's your business. But the the context. they, They said it. I merely repeated what they said. And then I said it's impossible to condone paedophilia. So I was making quite clear my view. That was their view. I was saying my view is, despite this, it's impossible to condone paedophilia. And you said it's time that society acknowledged the truth that not all sex involving children is unwanted, abusive or harmful. And harmful. Did you say that? Is, that? is that your words or was that edited? No, that, that was part of the letter where I said paedophilia is impossible to condone. I know, I know, I, I see that means, part, yeah. That, that, means, that means I do not condone it. I, oh, no, I, I absolutely, I see I that part. I, I read that part too, but it does say, after you say that, it is time society acknowledged the truth that not all sex involving children is unwanted, abusive and harmful. Did you write that? I wrote that, but what was missing from that part of the letter was the qualification about young people of similar ages. But, but even, even leaving that aside, I was referring to what those people said as mature adults. So if I give you an example, um, I knew the filmmaker Derek Jarman. At about the age of 50, actually, he told me... I'll tell you what, I just, just hold on, Peter, for a second, because I actually have the clip where you talked about that. I just want to play it, and I then just, maybe you can put that into context for me as well. Yeah. All right, OK, here yeah. it is. Famous filmmaker Derek Jarman who sadly has, has died, um, he told me when he was about 50 that he had had sex with a young man when he was nine years old. He said it was his choice. He said he wasn't pressured or manipulated. 
He said he had no regrets about that sexual experience. So my view is, that's what he's saying. It's his personal view as an adult, mature man looking back on his childhood. If he says that, who am I or you to dispute it? Now I accept that most sex involving young people is abusive and wrong. His view is perhaps exceptional, but it's not a view that should be dismissed and denied. If an adult person looks back on an early sexual experience and says they consented to it, they were not pressured, they were not harmed, they have no regrets or complaint, I think we should do the honest thing and accept their viewpoint. Do you really believe that we should do the honest view and accept, accept their viewpoint that they may have had sex with an adult at the age of nine, consensually, as you say? Um, do you really believe we should accept that as being their view and that we shouldn't dispute that? Well, first of all, let me say, I don't think a person age nine can consent. I disagree with it. I oppose it. I condemn it. But if someone says that, then that is their belief. Well, then, would, their would belief we not, should we not though, take... But if somebody said that to you, or if somebody said that to me, Peter, tomorrow, at the age of nine, a 30-year-old man had sex with me. But at the time, I think I consented to it. I don't remember ever objecting to it. I was only nine at the time. And, I, you know, I, it's okay. I'd be taking that person to a guard station, to a police station. I'd be getting a support service to talk about them to them as to why they believe that was okay when they were nine years of age and why that person is not in jail. But... For a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old, the, the adult is the problem, not the nine-year-old. I would take the adult, if I knew who the adult was, I would take them to a police station. But I wouldn't take the nine-year-old. I, I would probably take the nine-year-old to a social worker or a counsellor or take, discuss it with their parents. But I wouldn't you, take the nine-year-old. Yeah, but when you, when you say, parents. who are we to dispute this? We are society. We are responsible. We are the adults. So we are responsible for the protection of children in this world. That's who we are to dispute it. Well, I totally agree that if a child is being sexually abused by an adult, of course we should intervene. The person who does that should be arrested and prosecuted. But Peter, I don't think we- but what, what you're saying in, in that piece, in that inter- I don't know when that interview was, by the way, but you're not too young in it, so it wasn't that long ago. I don't, when was that interview, that particular interview? That, that you said I don't that? know. Could, could, several years ago, I think. Okay, probably in the last 10 years anyway. But when, when you said that in the interview, you talked about, obviously, the, the film director that you were speaking of. And, but the rest of it was your view. Your view is that we shouldn't dispute it. We, not that we shouldn't dispute the sexual encounter, but that we shouldn't dispute the view, the view of that 9 or 10 or 12-year-old who had sex with an adult and who now is okay about it. That we shouldn't dispute their view. Of course we should dispute their view. Because clearly they couldn't have consented to it. So clearly something very wrong happened at that particular moment. And we should be wrapping that person up. We should be finding out exactly who it was that did that to them. And we should be supporting them. And we should be finding out who the person is because they're probably going to do it to somebody else. Well, if I had been around then, I, I would have done that. I would have done that. But that's not what you you're know, saying. In, but, that's, but that's not what you're saying in the audio. Surely then you would have elaborated on that in the audio and said, if I had have known who the person was had sex with this friend of mine or this straight or uh, gay or male or female friend or whoever it was, 
that I would endeavour to find out who that person was to protect other children and I would get support services immediately to talk to this young child. Well, not a child now, an adult now, about how they feel about that and why they don't feel harmed or scarred by something like that. Well, I agree, except that this story was told to me when Derek Jarman was about 50 years old. So the event had happened 41 years ago. And so I was in no position to identify who the perpetrator was. If it had been, if it had been someone talking to me today or yesterday or recently, then of course I would have pursued it. I would have pursued to ensure that the adult was arrested and prosecuted. In hindsight, Peter, do you regret some of the things that you've said in the way you've said them? Because you are clearly being taken out of context, if that's the case, constantly all the time. So why do you think people are doing that? I mean, in relation to the letter in The Guardian, um, to fresh eyes looking at that who didn't know you and didn't know, you know, that you were a campaigner or didn't know much about you or hadn't kind of read any of your, your literature, they would see that as very concerning. And if that was me and I sent a letter in good faith to The Guardian newspaper and they edited it in such a way that you suggest that it's not what you actually meant... I would have sued them because I have a good character and I wouldn't want my character uh, to be slurred in that way. So why didn't you sue the Guardian newspaper? Well, first of all, when that letter was published, there was no public outcry. People did not... But you saw it. But you, but you saw it, didn't you? So, sorry. You saw finish. it. Yeah, go ahead. At the time when the letter was published, there was no public outcry. People did not misinterpret it as an endorsement of child sex abuse. They saw it as a contribution to a debate. They understood where I was coming from, and they read the words that I said that paedophilia is impossible to condone. So people did not interpret me as uh, endorsing uh, adults having sex abuse. But you, but, you, but, but you know as well as I do, Peter, at the time you wrote this in 1992, there was no social media. Um, there was no such thing, I suppose, this idea nowadays where more people get to see something that becomes objectionable and um, pylons I think they call it on social media nowadays so if you had have written that tomorrow or yesterday and that appeared on social media you do realise that would have it would have come across very differently and if that was me and somebody printed that and edited that in such a way and I read it the next morning and I was happy to see my letter being printed in the Guardian and I read it I'm, going, I'm looking at it going that's not the way I meant it I'm going to sue these people why didn't you sue them? Well, I complained to The Guardian. Um, they were very, very apologetic. They said it was inadvertent and unintentional. Um, I accepted it. That I accepted their explanation. They said that because they'd included the paragraph saying that I had said that paedophilia is impossible to condone, they thought they had made it clear that I was not condoning paedophilia. In terms of suing them, first of all, you have to be very rich to sue someone. Uh, taking a libel case is a huge, expensive case. I am not a rich person. I did not have the resources. But particularly because The Guardian was deeply apologetic, you know, I accepted that it was, it was an unintentional, inadvertent mistake. Okay. Uh, okay, well, and obviously the, the, the letter is uh, a lot of what, I suppose, has been going on at the moment in relation to the allegations and some of the stuff that has been said about you on Twitter. How have you found the last week on Twitter? Do you, uh, are you, has it upset you? 
Well, a lot of it has been homophobic. Um, a lot of the react, not all of it, but a lot of it has been homophobic. But do you think it's fair? Um, but the question, I know Roderick said that uh, it was based on homophobia. A lot of the outcry. I don't think it was all based on homophobia. Some of the remarks I've seen have been disgusting, and I, I wouldn't deny that for a minute. But I think people have a right to be concerned if they believed, for example, that anybody was condoning paedophilia. They have a right to be concerned, don't they? Of course they do. Absolutely. You know, and but put things in the context. For many, many, many years, I have campaigned against child sex abuse. I have supported victims. I have helped their case when they're challenging and seeking to prosecute paedophiles. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm not doubting that. I've seen some of your work. But it also concerns me and concerns everybody when you see quotations like that or you hear people saying, "Why?" Do, you know, when you talk about not disputing a situation where a man of 50 years of age comes to you and said he had sex at the age of nine with an adult. You know, I mean, you can see why people would be confused and conflicted in their views in relation to what you've said. Well, I think people should examine all these things in the totality of my work. And it's time, it's very, very clear. If you go on my petertatchell.net website, you will see very clearly in article after article, I state, I do not support adults having sex with children. I oppose that. I say that young people should wait until they're older. They shouldn't have sex at an early age. Why did, um, by the way, why did you, I, I, I'm, because of your writings, obviously, and I'm interested in your writings, and some of it has been excellent, by the way, because I've read some of it. But some of it, I, you know, I personally wouldn't obviously agree with. Uh, but Betrayal of Youth, you're, you're familiar with that. Um, why did you write, you, you claim that you were tricked into writing a chapter in this particular book where you talk about the age of consent, etc., etc. Um, why did you write that? Um, because some people have referred to that book as the paedophile's handbook, um, because some of the articles in it are outrageous, not suggesting yours is, but some of them are outrageous. But uh, The Betrayal of Youth, you are familiar with it. Why did you write the article for that particular book? Well, paedophiles are very devious. They knew that I would not write a chapter in a book that was about paedophilia. So when I was approached, I was told it was going to be a book about child welfare and children's rights. And it was going to have chapters by child psychologists, welfare specialists, and even Ken Livingston. And Tom, um, Tom O'Carroll, by the way, which brings me back to the statement. That, no, the, no, no, they never mentioned Tom O'Carroll. They never mentioned n- anybody like that. Oh, no, I, I, but it brought me back to the phrase that you did, and I heard an interview the other day, and you ended the interview with the same phrase, which is love and let love. And that is a phrase, of course, that Tom O'Carroll used. It was actually the chapter in the book, um, which was love and let love, the chapter in the book by... Well, uh, I've, I've used that I've never, any knowledge yeah. what Tom O'Carroll may have said, and it's a very common phrase from mm. decades ago. Um, anyway... I wrote the chapter. It never, never mentioned paedophilia. It didn't endorse paedophilia. It didn't support the abolition or reduction of the age of consent. It discussed various aspects about the age and of consent. And who, who, asked you, who asked you to write that chapter for that book? Who, who was involved or who asked you to write the chapter for the book? I don't know the name of the person. You don't know the, um, you don't name, know the name of the person who asked you to write a chapter in their book? No, I was approached by saying, will you... Well, I probably at the time, but this was like, what, nearly 40 years ago, um, uh, I, I was asked to write the chapter, and I wrote a chapter which never mentioned, let alone endorsed paedophilia, and I was horrified when the book came out. Because it's littered. About five, yeah, it's littered with three stuff. Three or four, five years later. Um, I had no idea who the other authors or other chapter headings were going to be written by. I was horrified. Of course, I would have never written the book 
if I had known. Did you, did you I, take legal action against uh, against the author of that book as well? Because of what? Well, you felt obviously you were you were tricked into that in some way. Now, and by the way, the author of that particular chapter that I mentioned earlier on was later sentenced to nine months. He appealed that, by the way, of importing indecent pictures of naked children. And then again, uh, for another two and a half years in two thousand six, for possession of a huge range of images of child abuse. So, did you? Which anybody who would have anything to do with that book, of course, uh, would be abhorrent. But as you say, rightly, you were tricked into it. So if you were tricked into it, did you take legal action against them? Because I certainly would have. Well, how much money do you have? I don't have a you huge know, amount of money, but, I, but I'd, find some, I'd find some way of doing it. I don't have a huge amount of money. I don't have any, actually. Action, to bring a liable action takes about £50,000. I don't have that money. I've devoted my life to human rights. I haven't made a lot of money at all. But I think, um, I think with the greatest respect, Peter, if you went to a solicitor with a hard, fast case... And I think that would be a hard, fast case. And certainly in relation to the Guardian newspaper, even now, by the way, even now, and I don't know what the statute of limitations is like in the United Kingdom, but even now because... The statute of limitations is three years, and the book came out after three years. Okay. After three years, more than three, three years or more after I wrote the chapter. I'm not trying to wheedle... No, no, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you are, but, but I'm saying I would, I would find a solicitor and say, this is a hard and fast case. And I think a lot of solicitors would say, well, I'll take this on, don't worry. You know? I mean, I, I just felt, because I, I would hate to be in the position that you were in, uh, whereby I read, I, I'm asked to do something, you know, in good goodwill and good faith. And then I, re- I see my, the chapter that I writ- I've written on the age of consent, and you write a chapter on the age of consent, and, and there's nothing particularly wrong with the chapter that you wrote on the age of consent. I haven't read it all, but, but I mean, there's nothing particularly wrong, but you, it's in a book, which is now referred to as the Pedophile's Handbook by people. Yes, there's, as you say, there's nothing I've written in that chapter that remotely endorses or even mentions paedophilia. I know. You can see that I was clearly tricked. Well, Peter, I'm glad you come on tonight. Uh, for a lot of people, you would have clarified maybe some of the things that have been saying, people are saying on Twitter, and there's a lot more has been said on Twitter. Most of it probably quite spurious and quite disgusting, actually, but, uh, and most of it probably not true as well. Um, and I'm sure that's been, a, it's been a tough week for you. Have, you. have you been asked to do many interviews, by the way, in relation to this? Uh, no. Um, I mean, most people understand that I have a long history of opposing child sex abuse, campaigning against it, supporting the victims, and that the spin and interpretation put on these various issues that you've raised is not what I'm about. I do not endorse the sexual abuse of children. It's abhorrent, it's vile, I condemn it, and I oppose it. That has always been my position. And I'm really sorry if people have misunderstood or misinterpreted what I have said. I'm really sorry if I didn't make it sufficiently clear. I'm really sorry if I was tricked or manipulated. But nothing has ever been done by me which is intended to give any kind of credibility, support, or condonement of paedophilia. Just finally, before before you go... Okay, Okay, I think we get that. Okay, Um, Before you go, finally... Have you ever, at any stage, been asked to, or have you ever advised the Irish government in relation to sex education? Have you been asked to advise them? No, I have not. Okay, Because somebody had suggested on Twitter that you had been asked to advise the Irish government in relation to education, for example, maybe in relation to the sex education bill, of course, which has been put together at the moment. So you haven't been advised? No, that is is another fabrication, another misrepresentation. 
Is okay. absolutely untrue. Okay, I'm glad you clarified that. Okay. Listen, Peter, I appreciate you coming on the air and giving us your time tonight. Uh, I know we kept you for maybe a little bit longer than you probably imagined, but I do appreciate you answering all those questions. Uh, and I'm sure it's been a bit of a tough week for you because it is when that happens on Twitter. I'm well aware of it. It's happened to me a few times as well. Not obviously in relation to the same subject matter, uh, but in other matters too. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the air tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you.